Solomon builds the altar and the objects surrounding it. It's very interesting. We're going to study that as we look at the Bible today. Good morning, good afternoon. My name is Rod Hembrick. I'm Janice. And good evening. You thought I forgot evening, didn't you? I didn't forget evening. And it's important as we focus on this because we're reading through the Bible. Corey and Ryan are here. Corey? You know, there are a lot of details about the temple that are spoken of in our scripture reading today. We're going to be focusing in on one of those details, the doors of the temple. Ryan? Well, it's no secret that praise and worship was a big part of ancient Israelite culture, but just how ancient is music? Well, that's the theme of my study today. All right, the, the, the age of music, that's gonna be fascinating. Janice, what are we doing? Well, we're gonna take a break today from our Friday question, and we're going to have our special guest, Jim Cantalons, and you won't wanna miss it. Stay tuned. All right, so open up your Bible. Let's look at what God is saying to us as we study today. Second Chronicles 4, verses 1 through 6. Moreover, he made a bronze altar. Twenty cubits was its length, twenty cubits its width, and ten cubits its height. Then he made the sea of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. And under it was the likeness of oxen encircling it all around, ten to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward. It was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained three thousand baths. He also made ten lavers, and put five on the right side, and five on the left to wash in them. Such things as they offered for the burnt offering, they would wash in them. But the sea was for the priests to wash in. Second Chronicles chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We go into Second Chronicles 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 today as we go through the Word of God. You know, there is no question that King Solomon was industrious. However, he was preoccupied with building the Lord's kingdom as if it was his own kingdom. Now, from the beginning of his reign, Solomon was intimately involved with constructing Israel into a world power. Now, that's before his heart was turned away from God. Second Chronicles chapter 4 should remind us that God cares about the details of his work. In other words, when our work becomes his work, God is intimately involved in it. We must keep ourselves focused in the construction and development of God's kingdom work. This is very important because it's part of our eternal purpose. That's right. What we do now on earth prepares us 
for what we are assigned to do for eternity. Do you realize how long eternity is? Eternity is, I mean, I didn't even know how to take this. I mean, eternity is forever. How do you put that in your day timer? They don't have a day timer for eternity because it would never end. Think about it. How do you represent forever? And yet God has given us eternal life. That's absolutely amazing. Now, uh, let me ask you a question. Do you have your Bible guide? I'll tell you how to get it right now. Write to us or call us and ask for the Bible guide. When you ask for the Bible guide, we do 12 of these a year. And we send them to you every month automatically. We don't burden you with all kinds of letters, you know, on how to give money and all of that. We trust the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And so uh, if you go to, write to us or call us or go to Bible Discovery TV and click on it, it will take you to the donate page. And as I say, we trust the work of the Holy Spirit in you. So praise God, pray about it and ask the Lord what he would have you do. And we take that and we work with that. So thank you for that. But you can go to a page where you'll download it just like we printed it, just like we have it. And you can download the Bible guide anywhere in the world. If you can get to our website, you can get to the Bible guide. And in Jesus' name, you can download it. Now, as we focus today, we're going to talk about the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, help us to hear what your word says. We need to realize that you've spoken to us and keep us close to you as we do this and read from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's look at the word of God because it's important today. 1 through 4, chapter 4 of 2 Chronicles, it says, Moreover, he made a bronze altar. 20 cubits was its length, and 20 cubits was its width. Solomon's working here. And 10 cubits was its height. And then he made a sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other. And it was completely round. And its height was five cubits and a line of 30 cubits measured by its circumference. And under it was the likeness of oxen encircling it all around, 10 to a cubit and all the way around the sea. And the oxen were cast into two rows. And when it was cast, it stood on 12 oxen, three looking towards the north, three looking towards the west, three looking towards the south, and three looking towards the east. The sea was set upon them, and all of their back parts were pointed inward. This, this is absolutely fascinating. I want to tell you. Solomon built the altar and its objects. Fascinating. And the sea was supported by the 12 oxen. There's also 12 tribes of Israel. It's very interesting, you know. But it reminds me that when we make our offerings to God on his established covenant, we're doing that. We make our offerings to God on his established covenant. What? Yeah, we're not just giving money because it feels good. We're giving money based on the covenant of God. When God says, my kingdom will be supported by the people in my kingdom. God is showing the enemy of this world and showing the world, showing his followers that God can do things with us, his followers, acting and reacting to it. God can support his own ministry. Well, that makes me feel kind of interesting because I'm, 
I'm giving because I love the Lord. I'm giving and the Lord through my giving responds. That makes the offerings to God's ministry very different than offerings to any other organization. Keep that in mind. That's going to be very important. Then we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 5 or chapter 4 verse 5. It says this. It was a handbreadth thick and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup. Like a lily blossom, it contained 3,000 baths, describing, of course, all of this. Now, listen carefully. The sea held water so the priests could wash their hands and feet before performing their duties. Now, listen to that. The priests were to wash up. To enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar, the priest had to wash and be clean. You have to wash and be clean. So when we pray to God, it's always best to do it this way and say, Lord, I come before your presence and praise your name. Forgive me of my sins and help me, Lord, to go forward. That's a great way to approach God. When you come to church, do you come to God and say, okay, God, I'm here. Now, come on. Is that how you do it? What are you doing? That's not how you do it. You come into the presence of God and you begin to worship and you say, Lord, forgive me of my sins this week. Help me to become more like you. That becomes important. This is a staple of offerings and praise to God. This is what we have to remember. And so as Christians, as people who trust the Lord, let's remember that. Very interesting. Now, let's go on to the next verse because it gets interesting. He also made 10 lavers and put five on the right side and five on the left to wash in them such things as they offered for the burnt offerings, they would wash in them. But the sea was for the priest to wash in. Do you understand what he's doing here? Because this gets important. Solomon made 10 lavers or basins in which to wash the sacrificial offerings. That's how important they were. See, the offerings of God are made perfect to him. Now, I've given offerings to the Lord, and I'm sure you have too. When we give offerings to the Lord, we need to make sure that we're giving it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I give you this offering today, whatever it is, my tithe, or just an offering for somebody who's suffering in the Ukraine, or somebody who's suffering in other parts of the world. I give it. To you, Lord, touch these people, help these people. You see, when we offer our offerings with prayer and we say, God, this is why I'm doing it, suddenly it becomes very, very, very pointed and very directed. Beloved, we need to remember that God calls us for this time. I am so glad that I'm still alive, that you're still alive, because we are witnesses to what the Lord is doing right now today. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that the offerings of God as assigned by the scripture are to be pointed and we ask, Lord, that you would help us do that. Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now, you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to.
You know, Solomon didn't really do anything small, did he? It's pretty obvious as we read through the account of his reign and especially in his building projects, he didn't really hold back. He went full force, 150% into what he was doing. Uh, So today I wanna focus in on the temple specifically. We know that the temple is absolutely full of symbolism. You know, Solomon didn't skimp on the symbolism either. He really wanted to make this the best uh, most religious, most beautiful temple that the world had ever seen. And in many ways he succeeded. He even endowed the doors of the temple with this religious symbolism. Take a look. The field of archeology span has helped illuminate the puzzling description of the doorways of Solomon's temple. First Kings 6 gives us a description of the outer and inner doorways of the temple as having four and five mezuzot. Today, the word is used to reference rolls of scripture kept in decorative cases on the door frames of faithful observance of Judaism. While the word is very closely associated with doorposts, the Old Testament isn't referring to four and five rolls of scripture on the temple's doors. It's referring to some sort of architectural detail. Recent archaeological work in Kerbet Kaafa, a site occupied for a brief time around 1000 BC, unearthed a stone shrine model with an interesting doorframe. This model's door has three interlocking or recessed doorframes. The visual effect gives the impression of three rows of lintels and doorposts, with each doorframe getting progressively smaller as you would enter the shrine. This recessed detailing was also found on a stone altar at Kaafa, further solidifying its connection with the sacred or holy. The tradition of multiple recessed frames with holy places and objects is known from Mesopotamia and the Northern Levant, but wasn't utilized in ancient Canaan. From the Bible's description of Solomon's temple doors, however, now paired with the discovery of the recessed door motif in the earliest of ancient Israeli society, researchers believe that this is how we should understand the Bible's description. In the other cultures of the Near East, two to three recessed frames were common, but the Bible states the temple's doors had four and five frames, which could be a purposeful stylistic difference setting apart the worship of Israel. It's believed from surviving evidence that Herod's temple complex maintained this style. So it's not surprising then that after the destruction of the second temple in AD 70, synagogues and churches continued to incorporate recessed door frames into their designs. There is a lot more that could be said about the Temple of Solomon, the Temple in Jerusalem, and we're going to say more about it in later shows. But for now, uh, let's continue studying. All right. That's very good. Thank you, Corey, for that. We really appreciate it. Ryan, what's going on? Yeah, well, today we, of course, began the second book of Chronicles. And as I read through chapters one to five, one passage really stuck out at me. And it's second Chronicles chapter five, verses 12 and 13. And it says that all the musicians stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Now, I know there's a lot going on here, but today I really want to focus on the instruments and the music. What was music like in the ancient days? And what were their instruments like? Were they just primitive workings as some of us might expect? Well... Check it out.
Music is well known and acknowledged to be very ancient in origin. Indeed, archaeologists have uncovered musical instruments from very ancient times, some of which are not crude or primitive, but are highly crafted. In fact, even modern musicians do not know how these ancient instruments could be improved. But just how ancient is music? According to the Bible, music dates to the time before the Noahic Flood. Genesis 4.21 records that Jubal was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. The lyre was a stringed instrument which eventually developed into the harp, while the pipe, which was actually a combination of a few reed pipes, eventually developed into the more elaborate organ. So Jubal, a name that is the same basic word as Jubilee, is the inventor of both the stringed and wind instruments. While the Bible is full of examples of ancient musical instruments and songs and psalms, it is by no means the only source of evidence. For example, Don Landis notes that in Greek mythology, the panpipe has been known since 2500 BC. It was known as the instrument of shepherds and was tuned by putting wax into the tube to achieve the right tune. Stringed instruments also have a long history dating from 2000 BC in Mesopotamia. Percussion instruments have also been common. Rattles, drums, and tambourines have been found and pictured in ancient drawings and carvings. Even the first organ was invented in the 2nd century BC. This is quite an accomplishment because something as technical as the organ would require a great amount of intelligence and time to perfect. It has also been discovered that similar instruments are used in various cultures worldwide. For example, the alos, a pipe with double reeds like an oboe, known since ancient times, has been discovered in Greece, Java, Bolivia, and Peru. In fact, the bagpipes of Scotland and Ireland are also a form of alos. Another instrument, called the Volroer, has been used in Australia, Egypt, the British Isles, Scotland, and New Guinea, and by the Inuit of Northern Canada, the Dogon in Africa, the Maori, and almost all of the tribes of North American Indians. Flutes are also common and are thought to be one of the most ancient of instruments. Of the flutes found in Europe, Professor Chris Stringer says they provide yet more evidence of the sophistication of the people that lived at that time. While these discoveries show absolutely no evidence of the evolution of mankind from primitive, apish creatures, they do support the biblical claim that intelligent man and musical instruments predated the Flood. Additionally, the fact that similar instruments were used in various cultures worldwide shows a common origin and or cultural interaction. Again, this supports the biblical account of Babel, where one nation became many and dispersed all across the globe. So contrary to we moderns' expectations, ancient musical instruments aren't primitive workings. On the contrary, as I said, even modern technicians don't know how to improve on them. So this praise and worship that was being performed by the ancient Israelites in today's passage must have been absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And uh, when we worship and sing, we have to remember that the Lord is good. You know, one of the things that we do here is we keep an eye on what, what's going on in the world. Uh, the Ukraine has been on our mind, as we know, for the past two months, and uh, it could be changed now that we're taping this, but we want to introduce you to somebody that we're partners with, and that's Jim Canelon. Jim is here. Jim, how are you? I'm terrific. Thanks, Rod. And uh, you, Working for Orphans and Widows is a missionary organization that works, of course, in Africa, works in India, and uh, now you work in Ukraine. Yeah. And goodness gracious. I mean, I can't believe it. I mean, who knew? I mean... Imagine something coming along that could actually eclipse the COVID-19 crisis. You know, it's like COVID is now in the back burner. I mean, all of our focus and attention is on Ukraine. And for me, you know, as the founder and president of Working for Orphans and Widows, 
it's a no-brainer. I mean, we work with orphans and widows, and suddenly we have this whole new horizon because of the, the war where you've got um, millions of refugees. You have uh, maybe 150,000, last time I looked, children, and then many of them orphans who are in desperate need. And because we work exclusively with WOW, have done so for 22 years with local churches and local champions with whom I have relationship, who I know and trust, we're able to shift into uh, Ukraine because there in Slovakia is a pastor overseeing a number of churches who have opened their doors and their basements. Friend of yours. A friend of mine. Uh, to uh, orphans and widows fleeing the crises, the crisis there in Ukraine. And uh, in fact, uh, let me just show you a pic here of uh, some of the orphans. Uh, th this, you know, the uh, picture is worth a thousand that. words, right? Look at that. That's beautiful. See the little little gal there in the middle in the green shirt, yeah. uh, giving us a heart, yeah. and a few of them with thumbs up. I mean, you know, the the, the irrepressible optimism yes. of children. I mean, they're orphaned. And I don't know how many recently some of them have been orphaned, but the point is they're orphaned. And um, this was a group um, <clears throat> just just uh, two or three days after I engaged with this uh, network of churches in uh, uh, in that area that have been shifted by bus to uh, Poland. Uh, when I got the pick, uh, 30 of them had already gone, and then the next 30, I think, are, are certainly gone. But they, they've been replaced by... And that's a church basement? That's a church basement, yeah. It, you know, uh, if there's always, if there's been a knock against Christians, if they, is they don't practice what they preach. You know, they, they're they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And yeah, you know, we've heard it all, right? Jesus said, "You'll be known by your fruit, by what your life produces." And when I see Christian churches producing this kind of fruit, mm -hmm. this kind of unbridled openness, compassion, and care. For the most desperate of people on the planet, I say, God bless them. Jesus is there, mm. and and I, you know, when I when I when I appeal to people to to be supportive of orphans in general, but certainly in terms of these orphans, I'm appealing to the Jesus in the viewer. You know, uh, you, you can't help but respond viscerally, you know, uh, spiritually, deeply, mm -hmm. um, when you see need like this. And it's interesting when Jesus ministered time and again. I mean, I pastored in Jerusalem for seven years. I, I know I know Jerusalem. I know about the beggars at the various gates. And there's so many of them, you have to walk past a lot of them. But the ones where you look and you're moved with compassion, you do something. Well, this was Jesus. Every time he did something special and moved with compassion, he, okay? So he might have walked past 10, but the, the 11th, he's moved with compassion. Well, similarly, I, I, say, I say to you viewers, you know, if, if you're, if you're moved with compassion for these Ukrainian orphans, well, consider that to be the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life and do something about it. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, they can do something about yeah. it if they go to wowmission.com. Yeah, wowmission.com. You can, I don't, by the time our viewers are listening to this, I'll probably have updates on my website. As I'm speaking right now, it's so new. I'm just getting to that point. But um, yeah, wowmission.com. But then we partner with Bible Discovery so people can support either way. Mm -hmm. Corey? And, and it, you know, yeah, no, what I was going to say is what I really appreciate, what I really appreciate about WOW is that relational aspect and, and the fact that, you know, 
when we give to the organization, we're empowering local churches, you know, centers of, of Christ's love that are already there. We're allowing them to give even more and to do even more. You know, there's a whole host of aid organizations that people can give to that, you know, we're foreign bodies coming in right. and just delivering aid. But in this case, you know, we're as a global body of Christ, we're siphoning off our resources to where they're most needed. And I really appreciate that about WOW. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a pastor and uh, my African friends call me the bishop from Jerusalem, which I'm not. But, <laughs> you know, I'm big, I'm bald, I got wet hair in my face. You know, I got all the right status symbols for Africans, for, for you know. Yeah. But the point, the point I'm making is this. It is the local churches, the local church mm -hmm. volunteers, the local people who speak the local language, who are living the local lifestyle, who are doing the ministry. As you mm -hmm. say, Corey, it's not some white guy coming in from the outside. Mm -hmm. Similarly in Ukraine. I mean, they, they may have the same skin color, but the point is it's a totally foreign culture to us. It's a totally different language, totally different lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so having Ukrainian pastors, Polish pastors, mm -hmm. championing this, to me, is absolutely key. Mm -hmm. I think it is. And uh, I want to say again that if you go to uh, WOW Mission, it's not plural, it's singular, wowmission.com, uh, that's how you can give directly to Jim. And of course, if you've been giving here, you know that we tithe to them and that becomes very important. And uh, thank you, Jim, for your mm, work pleasure. in this. It's, a, it's just a great project. And of course, the we pray that the war stops, Father. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I believe and I understand the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that I pray that more people would understand that and would begin to realize. And Father, there are individuals who need to feel and understand that you are alive. So help them today. And Father, in the Ukraine, help us. In Russia, help us. The Russian missionaries, we have some who've contacted us and so help them as well, Lord. We have to be careful what we say, but Father, touch them in Jesus' wonderful name. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we bring all of these needs to you. And we all said together, amen. Thank you for joining us today. It is great to have you with us, but it's also great because we can tell you about Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 3.30 to 4.30, we are live on Facebook and YouTube and on Bible Discovery TV for prayer. Join us, won't you? We'll pray for you live. Today we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, I realize that sin is a horrible thing. Thank you for forgiving my sins in Jesus' name. 